All right, this morning is September 23rd. It's 2007. Our message this morning is No Way Out. That has a nasty feel to it, doesn't it? No Way Out. You ever watch movies where they go down into caves or something? I watched this one where they were on an island in, uh, off the coast of Mexico, and they had to swim through these little narrow corridors, and there was no way out except behind them, and they didn't know how far it went. And I remember just sitting watching that on TV made me feel nervous. I'm not claustrophobic, but I don't like the idea of no way out of anywhere. Yet I remember very clearly in my life a time period when I was living in a prison that I had built with my own two hands. I didn't mean to. I didn't know I was building it. But I had surrounded myself with people that lived a certain way. Uh, you might say they were all fools and I was their leader. What does that make me? And I wanted to change, but I couldn't. And I talked about changing, but I couldn't. And I tried to implement discipline to get myself to change. At that time in my life, I was physically very disciplined and yet could bring about no sense of real and lasting change. Then to break my heart further, somebody that I believed... Two of my closest friends that I believed were better men than I was. My heart told me that. Both had life-changing, dramatic experiences with Jesus. And I saw that they were not as in bad of a need of change as I was. Their oil wasn't quite so dirty. And yet they saw a need for it. And it brought me to a place where I felt like there was no way out of the situation that I was in. And I cried out for help. And my salvation prayer was not pretty just like the rest of me. I fell on my knees and said, Lord, change me. And in there, there was a subtle acknowledgement that I had not the ability to change myself. I don't know whether you can relate to that at all, but our message this morning is called No Way Out. And it's a little bit about that feeling. And it starts in Matthew 3, starting in the first verse. Are you all with me this morning? I hadn't already put you to sleep, have I? Are you all help me out. Right? We're a congregation that is mostly white, and we're known for being dry, dull, boring, no rhythm, all of those things. This morning, let's disprove that stereotype a little bit. It'd be okay if you talk with me. Let's say some things make even a white preacher shout. That's what I heard. All right? So, y'all going to help me this morning? Okay. So, in Matthew 3, verse 1, in those days, John the baptizer, Pretty important distinction. The Baptist church did not exist at this time. Okay? In those days, John, the baptizer, came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. What an amazing concept that is. Repent. Repent is the Hebrew word teshuba. Teshuba literally means you are headed down 59, going north, and you realize after looking at the directions, examining your surroundings... I needed to be heading south. And so you make a turn. You come to a place in life where you've decided this is not where I want things to go. And you make a turn so that they will change and you will head a new direction. John the Baptist comes on the scene and he says, to a whole nation, you must teshuba. You must change your direction. And then he says, the kingdom, forgive my poor penmanship here, 
The kingdom is near. Kingdom is a compound word in English. And it's made of two ideas. A king and his dominion. A king and his rule. And this man is standing before a whole nation saying, you must change your course because the king and his dominion, his kingdom, are near. Or some translations say, at hand. This is a difficult phrase to go from Hebrew to Greek to English, but another way to say all of this would be, the king's dominion is upon you. It's about to overtake you, is the idea. Now this is a troubling message for them for the same reason that it is for us. Most of the people hearing this wore a title. Their title, does anybody know what it was? starts with an I and ends with an L. Israel. Israel means prince with God. They're God's chosen people on the planet. Why on earth would they have to make a complete change of their direction? And why would they have to be concerned about the king's dominion being upon them? Why? They think, I have no need... I'm already an Israeli. How many times have you seen clearly that somebody would benefit from a change of direction in their life? But their answer is, wait, I'm a Christian. I was baptized long ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> there are people that are hearing this message and some are cut to the heart and others it just kind of bounces off. Wait, I don't know what that dude's talking about. I have no need to change my direction. We'll talk about that more in a minute. This, let's see, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. We'll talk about this more later, but I want to encourage you. We serve a God who will meet with you in the desert. The hardest place to hear Him in the world is in the King's palace. Pleasures, comfort, ease all around you. This is why Jesus said the poor were rich in faith. It's not an admonishment to be poor. It's just a statement of fact. It's in our dry places in life, in our times of need, that we have an opportunity to see our arms are short and His are long. We have an opportunity to see that things are not going how we would like and cling to Him and see them change. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. This is a really unique concept. Jews sometimes cleanse themselves ritually. This was called a mikvah. They have mikvahs all over Israel today, some 400 outside the ruins of the temple. It was a place where you would go and be cleansed from something. Now, most of the time, in the ritual law, you're being cleansed so that you can make a sacrifice. Or you're being cleansed because you had to spend so many days outside of a camp. Or you're being cleansed because of something temporal. John is suggesting something totally different. John is saying, I want you to be cleansed because your life is headed a different direction than the king's dominion wants it to go. And people were being baptized. This is an astonishing thing. This is the government of God on earth in Israel. Their constitution is the Word of God. I mean, in the United States, we're pretty proud of our constitution. 
But it was not given to us letter by letter from God on a mountain. And in Israel, it was. And yet this nation with God's written word as their government on earth is being told you are headed the wrong direction and you need to be cleansed. And some were doing that. And they were confessing their sin. In English, sin is an archery term. It means the degree to which you have missed the mark. They were confessing that they had acknowledged they were not heading in the way God wanted and they wanted a new start. They wanted to get a bath. They felt dirty. And they wanted to start again. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. With that in mind, turn with me to Luke 7. The message goes out to all of Israel. A messenger comes, one who has been prophesied about many years before. Malachi spoke of him hundreds of years before he showed up. Isaiah spoke of him 700 years before he showed up. And he's showing up saying all of Israel needs to change the direction. All of Israel needs to be cleansed. And the Pharisees and Sadducees who happened to be the leadership of Israel... You might say these were the denominational leaders in their yearly conventions. Or this is the Vatican in Rome. Whatever you like, whatever your particular genre of Christianity has been. And when they come face to face with this message, it's like oil and water. They're having a hard time accepting it. And it's not accepting them because they see no need for a change. But there's a different group of people in Luke 7. In Luke 7, starting around the 29th verse, listen to this. All the people, even the tax collectors. A tax collector in Jewish society was the lowest of the lowest Benedict Arnold, worm, coward, scumbag type person. Because there was a government above Israel by Gentiles ruled from Rome. And they were imposing taxation upon Israel. Israel saw themselves as the chief among nations. God's people should not be subject to anyone at any time, anywhere. And yet, this book, not this book, the book we just were in, was written by a man who had turned on his own people and collected taxes for the Romans. Tax collectors were considered dogs, maybe worse than dogs. And they heard this message and came. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves. Since you might want to read that again. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the experts in the law, rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Fundamental to walking with God. The very most fundamental level of all Christians' relationships have got to be a place where we realize that the direction our life is heading is not what we wanted it to be and we needed to be cleansed. Isn't it amazing? 
Who received this message? Who were John's hearers? They were the down and outers. They were the people that it was obvious to everyone needed to change. One of the most difficult things about preaching in America is most of us have the attitude that I'm okay and you're okay. Just don't look too close. Right? If only all the houses were as beautiful inside as they are on the outside. Neatly manicured yards, fingers, some guys these days, toenails. And inside, something that is nasty and something that is dirty. All the time putting up a facade, telling everybody, I'm okay. This is how I roll. And God is trying to get through a different message. And we use all kinds of things to protect ourselves from the message. Have you seen those church people? White and nerdy. Have you seen those church people? They hurt everybody that's there. They eat their own. All of which is probably true. But it does not deny the fact that the kingdom of God is coming upon us. And there will be those to be found inside His ruling, His dominion, and those to be found outside. That's the message. How we respond to it determines not just where we'll stand for an eternity, but how you'll face each day. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, they had no problem with this because they knew in their own lives. They didn't think of themselves more highly than they should. They knew because all of society around them confirmed for them that they were low. And so they welcomed a change. But how many of us would readily identify with that? Don't most of your friends think you're a good person? Your mama does if nobody else does, right? Hadn't we spent most of our lives trying to project an image that's acceptable to everyone else? Oh, in those youthful years, you say that you wear your hair a certain way and don't care what anybody thinks. But oddly enough, it always fits with some other group of people. You're never the only one. I want to be unique as long as I'm sufficiently like everybody else to be accepted. It doesn't really change as we get older, though. It really doesn't. We paint our houses certain colors. We drive certain cars. All of those things to give everyone the impression that everything's okay. And yet, if you drive down my street, statistics say that 50% of the people are in adulterous affairs. Is everything really okay? 80% of our nation claims to be a Christian, but a growing majority has no problem killing their own babies. Can we really say that they're living in the king's dominion? And I'm not throwing stones at people that have made mistakes. Never been pregnant, so I've never been faced with that choice. I look a little pregnant, though, don't I? I have, however, made other wrong choices. And I know what it's like to be presented with the good that I should do and not have the courage or the strength to do it. And I saw no way out. Turn with me to Matthew 11. I had a certain impression of Christians. Is it okay with you all if I share that with you? You may identify with it. I was probably a whole lot more judgmental than you are. I saw Christians as weak, little effeminate men. I saw the pastors as con artists. That's a nice way to put it. I saw the slick back haircuts and the weird accents. Brother, I just love you. Well, good. Do it from a distance. All the suits on Sunday bothered me greatly. And yet, before long, to fit in, because that was the environment I was at that time being raised in, I became one of them. Just as rotten inside as everybody else, 
but telling everybody it was okay on the outside and using fig leaves of religion to cover my sin. I was doing the same thing everybody else was, all of the same places they were doing it, but I could quote John 3.16 and I could win Bible awards. But nothing about my character had teshubad. Nothing about my life fell within the king's dominion. It was all window dressing. And nobody seemed to have a problem with it because there was pretty well a compromise. I won't look deeply in your life if you don't look deeply in mine. I won't call you a hypocrite if you don't call me one. In fact, we're just going to agree right up front we're all just sinners. What a miserable, nasty agreement. God's called us to be saints. He's called us to be more. The message has never changed. Teshuba, the kingdom of God, is upon you. It's time now that we're becoming aware of God's will to do something about it. I was telling this to somebody one time. They said, hey, be easy. Rome wasn't built in a day. I said, no, it wasn't. I don't want to build Rome. We're talking about the kingdom of God. It's upon you. What will you do today? In Matthew 11, I found out something about God. I found out something about His followers that for the first time, I could relate to. Because of an insecurity in me, because of being raised in an environment or whatever it may be. I'm not going to Dr. Spock it today or talk about when I was two, what happened. Who cares? I had developed this persona that was macho and that was tough, and anybody that knew me during those days knew that that was the case. The whole time, masking the weakness that I had. I could not change my own behavior. The things that I did not want to do, I was a slave to. But one of the things that the devil put as a stumbling block in my way was most of the Christians that I knew not only did not live powerfully, they were not men in the natural environment that I could relate to at all. And then I began to find out about men like this. Matthew 11, starting in verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing His twelve disciples, He went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask Him, Are you the one who was expected to come or should we expect someone else? Who announced Jesus' ministry? John the Baptist did. Who said, I am not worthy to carry... His sandals. John did. Who boldly proclaimed that the one who had sent him told him that the one on whom he saw the dove rest was the man. It was John. And we could go through lots of scenarios like that. And yet, John is in an area of his life where what's happened? He's doubting. He's in prison. I was in a prison of my own building. John was in a prison somebody else put him in. And he was there left alone with two prisoners called Doubt and Gloom. And they were giving him a beating. And I know you can't relate to this because life is wonderful, business is terrific, everything's happy. Isn't that what the bumper sticker says? Except nobody smiles on I-59, do they? And when you meet people in Walmart, they just soon cut your throat is do something nice for you. Except a small remnant. John had a doubt. No different than every other human being. Do you know what cures doubt? It's not creed. It's not believing more. It's not hearing more religious gobbledygook. Do you know what it is? Jesus had the cure. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. And those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. 
Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Jesus said, you go tell John the actions that you have seen happen. The whole world, myself included, at this time I'm telling you about, is waiting for a Christianity that does not tell you what to believe. They show you in their actions that God is real. They show you that they are living in the King's dominion. And how does that become apparent to people? When you are doing something different than they would do in the same scenario. It doesn't come from throwing stones at people. It doesn't come from a nice, neat, tidy church membership somewhere. It comes from being in the heat of a furnace or cold dampness of a prison, of whatever your prison is, but choosing God's will over your will. And the problem with churchianity is they don't do it. That gives us a tremendous burden though, doesn't it? We can point and say they don't do it. They, they're the problem. And then we've become one of them. We must decide to live in the king's dominion in every area, no matter how hard, no matter how difficult. John made up his mind. Do you know how we know this? They cut off his head because he wanted to live in the king's dominion and he did not recant. How many times have you turned your back on Jesus because it might cost you the love of a friend? He didn't bring you here this morning to judge you. He brought you here this morning to pardon you, to show you there are two kingdoms at war with one another and give you the opportunity to live in one or the other. I wish I could say He didn't care which, but I think His actions show how much He does care. But if there's one thing that He would rather you not do, if there's one thing that would be worse than you choosing to live in your own little dominion with you as king, it's that you straddled the fence and confused the rest of the people. Be sold out. Be hot or cold. Pour your heart and your life into Jesus or get out of Jesus. When it came to me, the biggest, sharpest revelation should have been the most obvious thing in the world. And I won't go through the laundry list. My parents are watching in Baton Rouge. My in-laws are here. Some of you have known me a long time. You could go through my laundry list better than I could. But the thing that should have been the most obvious to me was that I was living in the kingdom Eric had built. And it wasn't. Somehow or another, the piercing truth came to me that my life must change. That I didn't have the power to change it. And here's the biggest one. That I was not what I said I was. I wore a Jesus tie tack to a football meeting. And one of my friends fell out laughing. <laughs> Why are you wearing that? I was broken. He had no idea. I was crushed beyond words descriptions. Because I wanted to be that. I just didn't have the strength to do it and I didn't know how. God's brought you here this morning so you can make those decisions. Not walk an altar. Not get a gift certificate or join a donut club on Sunday morning. He's brought you here so that maybe for the thousandth time in your life. But this morning could be different. You can choose to live in His kingdom instead of the one that is a prison you've built, you're building for yourself. If your mind's racing backwards in time, wait, I was baptized in such and such date. I became a believer in such and such date. I don't care. How about yesterday? Were you in His kingdom yesterday? 
Quit making it an event in your path and let's talk about a lifestyle that will control your actions tomorrow. Mind you, I'm not telling you that you will be perfect. I'm standing up here today as far from perfect as a pastor is allowed to be. I'm telling you that my whole life, though, has become an effort to get in His kingdom. Not in some celestial kingdom far, far away. In His kingdom today. In His rule and dominion today. When you hear the kingdom of heaven is near, do not think of a spaceship coming to suck you away. When you hear the kingdom is near, think about the choice to live in His rule or out of His rule is before you right now. Is this message not that entertaining? I want with all of my heart to be found with you on those days. I want the encouragement of knowing that when you're standing next to me in your life's biggest struggle, trying to get out of the prison that you built for yourself, that you choose Him because it gives me hope. In every struggle I face, it gives me hope. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. Did you notice Jesus didn't have flowery words for John? He said, you'll be blessed if you don't fall away because of me. A king is glorious, is awesome. His position is elevated. He did not lower himself to beg John to believe him. Instead, he simply shared his character. This is what I do. These are my actions. This is what I'm about. John, you'd be blessed if you don't fall away because of me. Too often churches have lessened the gospel of Jesus Christ by begging people to be saved. I'll be honest. If you won't love Him wholeheartedly now, I don't want to spend an eternity with you. Don't even really want to spend a week with you. Lest there's the potential for change. But I see in my own life, and it fills me with mercy, how many times I fall flat on my face and He hasn't given up on me. I'm praying you won't give up on me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? I get in trouble occasionally, and I actually kind of revel in it. I've never quite gotten that conformity thing down. We often quote from movies that Christians are not commonly associated with. I think last week was Norbit. Cassidy called me on it, put it on my MySpace page. Jesus was doing the same thing here. This is a novel. There are no novels in His days, but it's a children's story. It had been around a hundred years before Jesus was walking the earth, and it was called The Oak Tree and the Reed, and if you look hard, you can find copies of it today. The last time I preached and covered this subject, I actually had it in my hands. And the moral to the story that mothers were telling their children that this whole crowd was familiar with was that a reed was a survivor because it vacillated with every push of the wind. It would go wherever the pressure wanted it to go. And the oak tree, although it was strong and powerfully built, was not a survivor because it would stand strong, planted deep, and suffer for its conviction. The natural tendency of the child would be to want to be the survivor. And the deeper message that the mother was trying to teach is, 
Sometimes there's a price for your convictions, but it's worth it. And Jesus is saying, what did you expect to see? A prophet who would go out and vacillate with the crowd? Do whatever it took to save his own life? I tell you, John is an oak. And he'll suffer the consequence and within six months, they cut off his head. But he made the king's dominion. How much less pressure did it take to get you out of the king's dominion? And how many times? I do not want to be a reed. I want to be an oak. And I don't care what the cost is. What did you go out in the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in the king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Sometimes we just see no way out. In John's life, though, we see a man who is bold enough to stand and face down an entire nation, to look at the king of the nation, speaking of Herod, and say, you're wicked, and your relationship with your wife is wicked, and your desire for your daughter is also wicked. And they cut off his head for it. But he showed us a way, a way that loved not his life so much that he would shrink back from death. You might say that there was a crack in the prison cell that day. People had been baptized by him and they saw him fulfill and make good on his mission. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Is that a compliment? That is a huge compliment. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. If you finish your life in the king's dominion, then you're greater than what you saw in John's ministry. He's just announced the possibility. It pointed in the direction. We have the opportunity to experience things John never did. Watch this next verse. This is the one that gave me hope. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven... Let me tell you real quickly... This is an evasive synonym. This is a humble way of speaking about God's kingdom. Sometimes the Gospels say the kingdom of God. Other times they say the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chooses kingdom of heaven and people don't know why. And some that are kind of silly that teach their Gospels of gain have even made it uh, a strong theological point as if they were two different kingdoms, one of God's and one of heaven. This is a polite Jewish way to say God without having said it. Have any of you ever met an Orthodox Jew that would not write G-O-D? Instead, they wrote G hyphen D. This is a polite way because they took seriously God's Word. The third commandment, Judah, what is it? Do not... Oh, we put Judah on the spot. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. So they were worried about using it. Matthew was a Jew. And so when he writes about the kingdom of God, he calls it the kingdom of heaven because everyone knows God is king in heaven. The question is, is He king in your life? From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. 
from the days of John the Baptist, the king's rule, the king's dominion has been forcefully advancing. And forceful men lay hold of it. I bet in most of your lives, you don't spend time thinking about the Apostle Paul, Peter, any of the others, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, any of these guys, and forceful is the first thing that came to mind. Because the example of Christianity that you've seen around you is dainty, strange men with robes and rituals and blessings, but nothing in it forceful. I heard in this and saw in some people in my life at a time I needed it, men who had the courage to try something different. I saw no way out of the situation that I was in, but these forceful men in my life had found a way out of theirs. And it gave me hope. The kingdom of heaven is something that takes great force to enter into. That's not usually what you hear on Sunday. What you hear is, if you will just raise one pinky, if you'll close your eyes, totally ashamed of Him, scared to death anybody might draw attention to you, but raise a pinky in the back, yes, brother, God saw that. You're in the kingdom. Isn't that how this is usually done? It takes a man or a woman of force, resolute, determined, to every day decide to live in the king's dominion instead of what you see all around you. And he said, since the days of John the Baptist, this concept, this abstract kingdom, the without borders, without walls, is being advanced as men and women choose to live inside of God's rule rather than outside. It would have been so much easier if it had simply dropped upon us with borders and soldiers and uh, border crossings. But instead, it's hidden within the recesses of your heart. It's the decisions that we make that either accept or deny Jesus in our daily life. And it takes a forceful attitude to do that. Turn with me to Micah 2. Oh, you nervous about going to Micah? From here, you'll turn to the left in your Bible. You'll pass up Malachi. You'll pass up Zechariah. Habakkuk and Nahum and then get to Micah. Listen to how God said this through Micah. Micah being right around the days of Isaiah and King Hezekiah. We're talking about 750 years before Jesus. In Micah 2, starting in verse 12, I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. These are supposed to be the people of God. Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. We're talking about a gathering of the people who are called to be like God, right? One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. It's kind of confusing if you think about it. He says, I will gather them all together like sheep in a pen. And they will break out? God will send someone who breaks open a way and then the Lord, their king, will go through at their head? Are we talking about coming in or going out? An amazing situation occurred in Israel that is very much like the church today and like many of our lives in this room. They'd built for themselves sheep pens in the places God had called them. Like whatever church you've grown up in. 
They were there hearing about God, learning about God, but not doing the things that God called them to do. All of His people gathered together like sheep in a pen. But He sent one who broke open the way for them. Showed them how to live in the king's dominion instead of in the sheep pen. And as they watched Him go through, the Lord went through at their head, showing them, leading the way. This is John the Baptist coming with the idea that although you live in a place called the kingdom of God, and although you wear the name children of God, maybe people around the world call you the praise of God, you are not in God's kingdom unless you are moving where He tells you to move in the way that He tells you to do it. Doing what He says, living in His dominion. John the Baptist came and broke open a way where there was no way. Nobody in Israel had this message. Nobody was sharing this message. And He came bold and lost His life for it. And then Jesus showed us daily how to live in the kingdom of God, whether in or out of that sheep pen. I don't know what your sheep pen or prison looks like. I don't know what has consoled your conscience to allow you to live in some of the ways that we've allowed ourselves to live in. But the kingdom of God demands that we change. You can wear the title. You can live in the right place and attend the right services. But if you are not living in the king's dominion, you do not belong to the king. This message came to a people who had been bought and paid for by God. His sole possession among all the nations. And He did not spare them. That sin chills up your spine? It does me. And yet, somehow or another, I don't feel condemned in it. I want you to understand this. God is not looking to smite us. He's trying to draw the divide in our hearts so strongly that we cannot help but choose His mercy. You ever heard somebody yell at somebody else they were going to hell? Yeah, I have to. Uh, when it was told to me, the big problem with it was I didn't really deny that fact. In fact, the reason I was where I was doing what I was was that I was pretty strongly aware that that was true. And I didn't want to think about it. We don't need to tell people they're going to hell. We need to live in a way like Jesus did that our actions show everybody there is a way to live within the king's dominion on the earth now. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody you love? Have you ever thought the words that said, this is just not practical. It doesn't work in the real world. In business, you could never do those things. Yeah, you work with savages. You know exactly what I'm talking about. These men are tough. They're used to getting their way and they will fight when they don't. Was it any different for Jesus or any of the apostles? The men they worked with wore swords. How many of you go to work with a co-worker that has a sword on it? But their lives show us there is a way to live within God's dominion wherever you are on the planet at any time. The kingdom of God is much more abstract than people have thought that it is. Turn to Zechariah. For this book, you'll go to the right a couple. It's abstract, yet it's concrete. And you'll see that. Zechariah 2, 
If you're in the Thompson chain, this is on page 1053. If you're not in the Thompson chain, you need to look between Haggai and Malachi. Y'all there? 1053. In the Thompson chain, that is 1053. In the Hebrew Scriptures, it's Zechariah, the second chapter. If you're still looking for books, it's between Haggai and Malachi. Y'all there? Yes, sir. Michael, you there? Yes, sir. The third verse. Then the angel who was speaking to me left, and another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run and tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it, and I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. This is a term much like shepherds would use. Earlier we found out that you had to break out of the sheep pen that you were in to follow the one who breaks open the way and the Lord at our head. Now you find out that we're in a whole other kind of sheep pen called the kingdom of God when this happens. It has no borders. It has no walls. There's a great number of men in it. He even says livestock, which is kind of interesting. That's everything under your control. And God Himself is a wall of fire around you wherever you go. The ironic thing is the reason we live in the prisons that we have, the reason we built the religious systems around us we have, is to protect us. To protect us from other scrutiny. To protect us from the own searing words that the Holy Spirit speaks to our consciences. To protect us from everything. And God requires that we leave that safety net and follow Him wherever He would go. And then He says, He will protect us. He will be the glory within Shepherds backed their sheep up into a hillside where there was a cave. They pushed the sheep into the cave. Then they stacked rocks on the outside, left a small narrow opening called a gate, and they laid in that opening so the sheep couldn't go out except by going through the shepherd so that you couldn't go into the city of God without going through the shepherd. If the attack was so fierce, that the shepherd was concerned some would come in by a way other than him, going over the walls like thieves and robbers. You would put thorns and thistles all along the wall and light it on fire because a shepherd would give his life for a sheep. Jesus says He is the shepherd. He says He is the gate. In Him is all the protection you will ever need. You just have to find the courage to follow Him wherever He goes. John the Baptist broke open the way. Jesus is the Lord, our King, at the head, showing us the way that we walk. The scariest thing I ever did was seriously decide to follow Jesus. And initially, it cost me all of my friends. Initially, it cost me my relationship with my parents. Initially, it totally turned my world upside down. And during that time, I learned to trust Him. Having lost everything for Him, I now got to learn what it was to live within His protection. And you know what? The bills I was scared wouldn't get paid, got paid. The friends I was scared I wouldn't have, He gave me that and more. The family that I thought I couldn't be restored to are with us this morning, in the room and in Baton Rouge, watching by the Internet. Living in God's dominion has its benefits, friends. 
All of the benefits living outside of God's dominion are very short-lived. Very. They're like firecrackers. They go up and wow you for a while. And after a while, they're just not as impressive. You need more and more and more. But it always fades. Living in the dominion of God carries with it a satisfaction that you were designed to crave. Much as plants need to see the sunrise every day, you need the approval of your king. You need that feeling that says, today I made a choice for God that was a good one. You need it. Turn with me to Luke 16. Y'all tired of turning? Good, because we're not done by a long shot. The Scripture that I read you in Matthew is often translated many different ways. Some say the kingdom of God suffers violence and violent men lay hold of it. Some say violent men do it harm. All because this is a difficult Scripture to translate. The idea of forcefulness in the kingdom is a difficult idea. You run into a very similar principle when you begin to speak of Jesus as a man of peace. Is there anybody in here that disagrees with the fact that Jesus was the Prince of Peace? No, the Bible calls him that. So when you think of a prince of peace, you think of a docile individual, don't you? You think of somebody who everybody loved and spoke well of, don't you? I defy you to read that Bible and tell me Jesus was not the most confrontational human being you ever have come across. He insulted everybody that he ran into and even his closest followers at times. He looked at and said, you want to leave too? And yet he's a prince of peace. The Beatitudes said, blessed are the peacemakers, right? We missed that last part. Peacemakers. Psalm 34.14 teaches us peace has to be pursued. The, the tragic flaw in us is that we think the kingdom of God is something passive. Something that we sit back and it happens to us. It doesn't. The kingdom of God is very active. It's forceful. It's pursued. It's made in your life by the choices you make every day. And it's the hardest thing you'll ever do. But the rewards are the greatest thing you'll ever see. I'm a dumb kid from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, not well-educated even. And what God has done in my life and through my children, I am proud of because it shows the glory of God. There were once dumb fishermen that stood before a whole nation. But at the end of the day, they took note. These men had been with Jesus and that's all anybody needs to know about my life. I want them to see that I live in the King's dominion. What will people say about your life when you're gone? Will they have to lie at your funeral? As a pastor, I get asked to do funerals a lot. I want to tell you it is the saddest thing on earth to have to have the guy from the funeral home who never knew you stand up and lie about you. We don't want to think about that, do we? I'm just going to be honest. I don't think there's a forum in the world where people tell more lies I don't think any bar in America has more lies being told than the average funeral. Nobody wants to face the fact that we don't all make the kingdom of God. Nobody wants to live up to the idea that it is difficult, and yet He provides whatever strength you need in it. Look at Luke 16, the 16th verse. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John... Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Well, since we don't take up arms against the government like idiots in Waco, since we are not...
soldiers in a physical army. In what way do you force your way into the kingdom of God? How do you kick down doors and enter? You are the biggest obstacle to you entering the kingdom. We like to blame it on the devil. The New Testament is not nearly so devil conscious as the New Testament church. It's our own thoughts. It's our own fears. It's our own greed that we have to force our way past. How many times have you sat and thought, if I do what God wants, what will the consequences be? The revolution that needs to happen in your soul will not be a bloodless one. It's just going to be your blood that's spilled. Salvation is free. That's what we all say. It'll cost you everything. You give up the right to make your own decisions now. Now you look to the Word of God to make your decisions. You give up your hopes and dreams. At one time in my life, I wanted to be a football coach and history teacher. Can y'all see? I could wear those shorts and, you know. <laughs> but when you give up your ashes, God gives you something beautiful in return. Hold out rather be a pastor called and anointed by God than a football coach. I preached six losing sermons in a row. Y'all don't hire a new one. Forcing their way into it. It takes force. Luke 13 might be the most sobering Scripture I could read you. And after this, I'm going to change the subject so you don't hate me. After this, I'll be punched out. Too tired to throw any more knockout blows. If we haven't made a dent at this point then you've done a lot of hard work to sear your conscience. In Luke 13, there's the most curious question asked. Verse 22, Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as He made His way to Jerusalem. Someone asked Him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Wouldn't you think that's a pretty darn important question? How many times have you heard that preached on though? This is not how you build big gymnasiums or fill soccer stadiums. He said to them, make every effort. I thought that we couldn't do anything to be saved. I thought that this was just such an act of profound grace that it happened to me while I was sleeping without thought or concern. In fact, we could go so far as some have to say, oh, it was just predestined upon me. He says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. It requires effort. You have to wrestle. Let me ask you something. Have you ever thought of the fact that Jesus wrestled with God's will? Or have you only focused on the fact that He was perfect? What about when the man was pressed to the point where he sweat as if it were drops of blood? Because God's will was hard. It was hard. How about Paul? In the latter chapters of Acts, Paul has been told by the king of kings that he must go to Jerusalem and all of his closest friends are working night and day to dissuade him from going because it wasn't their will for him. How about Peter? Peter stands and at the same moment he's told, hey, blessed are you. That revelation didn't come from men, it came from God. Jesus is talking about going to the cross. He says, no, Lord, you will never. The kingdoms in our lives clash always. 
There will always be what you desire and what God desires. The good news is, as you train your flesh to do what God desires, it's not constant warfare. It becomes the occasional thought, the occasional very difficult situation, and it becomes a lifestyle of doing God's will. And the most curious thing happens. The way that you always thought was so good, you can clearly see is a path to destruction. It was killing you. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many... How many would be saved, did he say? Few. Many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. If you've ever been told these are people who did not answer the call, you were lied to. These are people who tried to enter and were not able to. What were they not able to do? The same thing Cain wasn't able to do. Sin was crouching at the door, but they did not master it. They didn't cry out for mercy. They didn't cry out for strength. They didn't war against it. They gave in to it. Are you surprised that the Scripture says, Do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. Have we had such a powder puff gospel preached to us all of our lives that we think we either eat Jesus in a wafer or we just simply walk an aisle in the church and either way we're good to go? The gospel doesn't teach any such ridiculous, foolish notion. It's a shame our churches do. It is difficult. The Bible says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And if in your prayer time all you ever hear is that you're a wonderful person, you're not listening hard enough. Sanctification is a process. He is a refining fire. Man's tested by the flattery or praise he receives. What happens when that's all we get from our pulpits? I want you to feel good about yourselves. I really do. I do not believe God wants you condemned. I don't think He wants you walking around hanging your head. But if all you ever hear is you're a champion, what happens to those areas of your life you are not living like a champion in? I want you to be holy. I want you to benefit from being in the kingdom of God. I want you to make the hard choices and know the satisfaction of having got it right. Not one that says, I'm better than you, but one that says, I didn't have the strength to do it. And He gave me what I needed. And here I stand today an object of His mercy. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. Who asked him this question? <laughs> People who were bought and paid for sons of God. Born into a religious heritage that made them sons of God. And who did he say only a few of would be saved? But the he will answer them, I don't know you or where you come from. The word know here is like Joseph knew Mary. I don't guess we have to expound on that, do we? Joseph did not know Mary until after Jesus was born. You know that doesn't mean that he didn't know who she was, right? It means that they were not intimate. There's a whole group of people, a vast majority that the Bible simply calls many. I've been in it and out of it at different times in my life that are known by Jesus' name, but He does not know them. They're not intimate. How would your wife feel if y'all slept in the same room but she wasn't on your mind when you went to bed or when you woke up? How would your closest friends feel if you were just friends in name but there was no intimacy between you? Your king is no different. You either love him enough to walk as he walked or you don't love him at all. That's a harsh word, isn't it? I hope to be able to make it. Paul said the same thing. And he said, my conscience is clear though. 
But my conscience isn't the final judge. He said, so make every effort to make your calling and election sure. Yeah. Or you could just raise up teachers who teach for money, write books for money, that will tell you what you want to hear. The Bible says that will happen too. can give you 50 pages of books of why you should have no fear. You're secure. Hmm. The thing I love most about Luke 13, I mean that I love very most, is the way that he ends it. Some Pharisees, if you thought they were all bad, you were wrong. Just like all of any particular denomination are not bad. God's got His remnant in everyone and I am thrilled to death when I meet Him. Some Pharisees come to warn Jesus that Herod wants to take his life. Why would they warn him? Because they loved him. They cared about him. They were starting to identify with his message, trying to find courage to be what he was calling them to be. And Jesus' response to the king of this country wants to kill you is, you go tell that fox that I'll press on today and tomorrow and on the third day I'll reach my goal. A forceful man. He could not be dissuaded from doing what was right. He could not be talked out of a confrontation that he knew was of God. He said, you need to tell him no, no prophet dies outside Jerusalem. He knew he was going to his death but could not be backed up. All of the apostles followed in his pattern. Why is it in the American church we think that God never called us to suffer or make hard choices and that if you have them, it's because you've sinned somehow? Why is that? That's never been true in church history at any time. This is the only time in all of church history people have bought the idea, hook, line, and sinker, you're blessed because you have an Escalade. It's the only time ever. And there is nothing... I'm, I wish you all had Escalades. I'd like to ride with you. Fred, I think you should get one. You're blessed when you're obedient is what you are. Blessed when you're obedient. We're going to read through some Scriptures in Isaiah and then we'll close. But I didn't tell you how many in Isaiah. You remember I told you I was all punched out? I am. I want to tell you good news. The good news of the kingdom was not that there's a king's dominion and you're not in it. That was not the good news. The good news is the king's dominion is enveloping you. It's upon you. It's at hand and you can choose to walk in it. If your mind is filled with all the things that you don't have the strength to do, think about this. In Isaiah 30, starting in verse 19, we're going to be in Isaiah 30, or the book of Isaiah for a while. O people of Zion, Zion means mountain of the Lord's brightness and it is synonymous with Jerusalem. So we're still talking about God's people. Who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. That's good news, isn't it? You ever had your face hurt because you cried so long? How gracious He will be when you cry for... When you cry for... If you were drowning, you'd have no problem crying out for help, would you? But somehow or another, our pride, we're supposed to be the people of God. What do we need help in? We'll sit there and our pride will sink us to the bottom of the ocean without crying out for help. Because if we ask for help, we might be admitting that we don't have it all right. It's so easy to be me. I can just stand up here and tell you right away. I don't have most of it right. I'm still much in the process. This is a home renovation project. If I'm going to be God's temple, He's got lots of work to do. 
that frees me from your expectations. I know what you expect pastors to be. I'm not it. I will never look like a movie star. I will never have polished words. I don't want them. I don't like it. I didn't like those pastors when I was still lost. And now that I'm in the kingdom, I still struggle with that thought. I like them when I see them living in the kingdom of God. How gracious He will be when you cry for help. What's He looking for? Is He looking to burn you? He's looking to show you His grace when you cry for help. As soon as He hears, He will answer you. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, I know we've been taught He does not do that. Trust me, He does. Examine the li- your lives in the last five years. Tell me there's been no adversity, no affliction. I don't know what planet you've been living on. Although He gives you, who gives it? Although He gives you the bread of adversity and water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, you will hear a voice behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. If you ever felt like there was no way out, God will make a way. If you ever felt like all you had was adversity and affliction, there was nobody to instruct you or show you the right way. He promises His people that you will hear a voice saying, this is the way. The question is, will you be so stubborn that you will not walk in it? Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way. Walk in it. Then you will defile your idols overlaid with silver (laughs) and your images covered with gold. You're not going to like these next few verses. You will then throw them away like a um, cloth. Y'all are reading with me, aren't you? Yeah. Not a Kleenex we're throwing away. When you find out what God's will is and you start to have the strength to walk in it, everything that's not His will will be as dirty as what that line there says. Something you want to fling from you. You're embarrassed of and don't want around. Yeah, y'all are surprised that's in the Bible, aren't you? The Bible's a rather shocking book. I like to call it lovingly confrontational. It can look at you with a smile and say you'll go to hell. But at the same time, give you a helping hand out of the situation you're in. What's God waiting for? A cry for help. Turn with me to Isaiah 43. How easy is that? You'll just turn to the right. Isaiah 43. Starting in... Verse 15, I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your King. Every kingdom has to have a king. It just so happens that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, has Jesus as its king, and He is holy, and He is the Creator of all. Isn't that nice? You don't have a king who doesn't understand you? A king who's just come in and conquered your people? A king who hates everything about you? A king who only has his kingdom in your area because he wants your natural resources? We serve a king who created us. He knows us. This is what the Lord says, He who made a way through the sea. How do you think it looked to the Israelites when they're facing the sea and Pharaoh's pressing them? There's no way out. But He made a way where there was no way. A path through the mighty waters... 
who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and the reinforcements together. And they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Pharaoh wanted to kill him, but God made a way where there was no way. For the former things, forget the former things. There's a word for you. Did you hear that? Forget the former. You didn't do good yesterday? Forget about it. Do not dwell on the past. Don't dwell on the past victories. Don't dwell on the past successes. Do you really think God's impressed that when you were 15 you were a great quarterback? Do you? Your friends aren't even impressed. They just humor you. Verse 19 is what the kingdom's about. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. God's allowed us to be in dry places so that we could do something new that would be obvious to us, that we could perceive. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the desert and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen. He's waiting for you to thirst for Him. He's put you in the positions that you're in so that you would see His kingdom versus yours. Find yourself on the outside looking in. His voice on. Wishing that you could drink of that refreshing water. And He'll give it to all free, without cost. He'll make as much of His will known to you as you will walk in. The people I formed for myself. Did you ever think of yourself that way? Tell me you have low self-esteem because you've been reading Cosmopolitan magazine. And these dull-witted Barbie dolls are on there that have more silicone than flesh on their body. God formed you for Him. He formed you for Himself, He says. Why? That they may proclaim my praise. He allows you to get yourself into situations that He wants to rescue you from so that, like any loving husband, you'll look up to Him and think He's awesome. He wants your praise. He wants you to cry for help. He wants you to do a new thing so that you'll praise Him. Look at Isaiah 49. You're wondering how many chapters are left in Isaiah, aren't you? Isaiah 49. Pray for me that Jesus will let me read this to you without crying. Uh, this is amazing. Isaiah 49, verse 8. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritance, to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. We serve a God who is telling you this is the time of favor. By the way, this is how Jesus announced His ministry. It's quoting from a different place in Isaiah, but it says essentially the same thing. Freedom for the captives. Light for those who sit in darkness. It's a gospel of good news. It's a gospel that says your kingdom's dramatically opposed to mine, but I would like you in mine. This would be like a halftime. You're losing by 80 points, and the other coach says, hey, any of you like to be on my team? The outcome of the game is certain. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. I'm just curious, when you read that, what do you hear? Some here, there's going to be barren hills. Why would God do that to me? 
Would God be his bride? Would he kill his son? There will be barren hills, but he will feed you on them. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat and sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads. What is a mountain if you're traveling? It's a great, big obstacle. But God's promising to remove your obstacles. In fact, with a little trust in Him, you can look at an obstacle, a mountain, and say, be removed into the sea. And He will do it. And my highways will be raised up. Even in ancient Israel, God put central cities for you to run to when you had done something wrong for help, and He built highways to them. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, and some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, O heavens! Rejoice, O earth! Burst into song, O mountains! For the Lord comforts His people, and He will have compassion on His afflicted ones. Engage the text for a minute, saints. Imagine that this is your response to Him. But Zion said, The Lord's forsaken me. The Lord's forgotten me. You ever felt forsaken, forgotten? No way out? Can a mother forget a baby at her breast and have no compassion on a child she's born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. 750 years before Jesus, Isaiah knew that God would do something that so affirmed His love for the people, that so built their trust in Him that it would be like engraving them on the palms of His hands. I don't know, maybe where Jesus' hands were pierced. If you have ever wondered if He's forgotten about you, if your situation is hopeless, if there is no way out, you need only think to the cross. He went to death and back. He can certainly reach you where you are now. This is a kingdom of good news. He just is waiting for you to embrace Him. Isaiah 57, 14-19 says basically that He will remove every obstacle from the way of His people. The high and lofty one will dwell with the broken and the contrite because He desires to heal them. What God wants from you today is for you to ask for His help to be willing for Him to do a new thing in your life because the old one's not working. He wants to make a way for you through these dry places. He wants to remove the obstacles out of your way so that you can be healed. That's what He wants. I won't read it to you, but I'll tell you about it. John 5, a man had tried all of his life. He had been crippled 38 years to get into a pool of water that he was told would heal him. But it never worked for him. He never could get to the water. Always somebody beat him in. Somebody stronger. Somebody more righteous. Somebody better. 38 years is a long time to hurt. Some of you have held your hurt way longer than you should. 38 years. A captive. The Word says he was an invalid. You don't want to think about that too much. What does that mean? Invalid. He was invalid. not fit for anything. And Jesus asked him, do you want to be well? What a question. 
It's almost insulting. What do you mean, do I want to be well? Well, Jesus knows human nature and sometimes we live in our filth so long we've become accustomed to it. The thought of change is so horrifying and we're so gripped with fear that we don't want to change. It's easier just to fail. Condemning ourselves to hell before we ever face the judgment. It's the worst kind of cowardice. But this man says, yeah, yeah, I want to get better, but everybody keeps beating me to the water. There's no way for me to get there. I don't have anybody to help me. Did you hear that? I don't have anybody to help me. Jesus grabbed him by the hand, pulled him off the mat, healed him right there. All you got to do is cry for help. We know you can't do it. I couldn't do it either. He will pull you out of the situation that has enslaved you for 30 years, 40 years, 20 years, whatever it was. And he has one thing of you. Now that you've been pulled out, carry your own load. Dude, live in my kingdom. Carry your own load. Don't sin. Something worse than this could happen to you. That's what he says. That's John 5. Why would John include that? You think maybe he wanted you to know that the good news of the kingdom is that no matter how long you've been in the situation you're in, there's hope? Do you think maybe he would want you to see all the ways you were invalid but Jesus could make you whole? That's why I think he included it. I don't want you to leave this place today. I don't want you to leave this place without having contacted God. Go stand up and we'll pray.